Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We uh, begin our job coverage in this hour uh, with Alan Kruger of Princeton University, uh, truly a giant of modern economics, particularly his work on the hourly wage. We can talk about that in a bit. You're piling through one of my books of the summer a couple of years ago, Leonard Euler, Mathematical Genius and the Enlightenment, which is really heavy reading. A lot of math in it, a lot of formulas. For, fortunately, Tom, it's the beginning of the summer. Yeah, but <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a tough book to get through because it's got a lot of theory in it. It's a very significant book. I was uh, more interested in his life, which I yeah. knew very little about. Um, and it's tough going, I have to say, to get through the physics and the math. Well, that's where that's I wanted to go. That's a good blurb, I think. It is. <laughs> but the physics and the math in the era then, the mystery, why is our central banking now any different? I mean, do we have an understanding of the physics and the math of our central banking thinking? You know what's remarkable for me in thinking about the book is humans have been thinking about developing math for millennia. And the progress was slow, yet in the early 18th century, they know far more than typical college student knows today. And when it comes to central banking, we're you know, much earlier in this period. So we're sort of pre-Newton, I'd say. I wonder, I'll put a question to you, Tom often puts to, to folks who are, who are academics. That is, are, are, how, how engaged with the mathematics are students in, in your department today, the students who are studying economics? Are they uh, as engaged with the mathematics as they used to be? Oh, probably more so. More so. Uh, I don't think, David, I'd be able to get in, into graduate school with the math that I had at Cornell today. Uh, but I would say this. Economics is more logic and more analysis than math. And I think the math is a proxy for someone who can think analytically. There used to be on the GRE exam an analysis part, and that was a stronger predictor of how well economists performed, how yeah. well they fared, uh, than the math component. Yeah, but we had a great debate this week with Adam Posen, who defended the orthodoxy of Phillips curve, et cetera, et cetera, and John Riding, who took a more neo-Vixellian view. It's the markets. It's we need to improve regulation. We need to change uh, corporate taxes, et cetera, more market-based, more flow-based, which Where's the tendency right now? Are we going to end up back to the orthodoxy of 10 years ago in 10 years? I don't know. Those are so inconsistent, to be perfectly honest. If you think about where the Phillips curve comes from, uh, I think of it more as coming from my dynamic view uh, of, of the economy. So uh, I don't see a, a conflict. I can tell you I uh, put some weight on historical estimates of the Phillips curve. Uh, and I also think making sure that we've got a proper regulatory regime for a financial system is important to make uh, the economy work for everyone. Let's get to this jobs report. What are you going to be looking for uh, today? What, what's this report going to indicate to you about the, the health of the U.S. economy? Well, you know, the most important number in the jobs report is the top line, uh, payroll growth number. Uh, 
But under the surface, labor force participation, what's happening with wages, it seems pretty clear that job growth has been moderating the first six months of this year. That's not surprising given where we are in the business cycle, given that the unemployment rate is below 4.5%. So I'll be looking closely to see if there are further signs of moderation. Uh, focusing on manufacturing, which has been pretty much moving sideways, although uh, with the decline in auto sales, I'm concerned that that could pull down all of manufacturing. Um, so uh, those are the, the, the main aspects of the report I'll look at. From a policy perspective, what, what, could, uh, what could improve those manufacturing numbers, do you think? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think fundamentally we need to invest more in research and development and manufacturing. And what uh, drove manufacturing is developing new products, products that can do new things. Uh, also, what drove manufacturing uh, is productivity growth, and that's continuing. It's driving down employment. Uh, so I think we need to think more on the product side and how can mm. we leverage our technology to create products that improve people's lives and put people to work. I think we need to rip up the script. We're coming back and talk to Alan Kruger about everybody wants to hear about. I'm going to guess 1994. Professor Kruger, correct me. Card Kruger, Kruger Card, a definitive paper on the labor economy of this nation. There is no other topic in labor economics now about the efficacy and uh, result of $12, $13, and $15 per hour minimum wage. Something everyone's been waiting for. Alan Kruger of Princeton on the minimum wage. Okay, here's the debate. The Washington Examiner, conservative rag, comes out and says liberals hate this report. And then the Washington Post comes out, liberal rag, and says, wait, the Washington Examiner's got a point. Essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, Seattle and others are finally getting the minimum wage back up to its inflation-adjusted level from another time and place. In recent decades, the minimum wage has been set below that inflation-adjusted glide path from before, and now at $11, $12, $15 an hour, we're really beginning to test what's the best minimum wage. How's the test going? Well, I think it's very preliminary. So I would I'll go reserve, with that. I would reserve judgment. Uh, I've looked at the studies from Seattle. There's more than one. And uh, I think that the conventional wisdom, which has become that modest increases in the minimum wage don't have a noticeable impact on employment, uh, is still correct. And we don't know where the turning point is. Um, the uh, evidence that we're going to start to get from Washington State, from Los Angeles, from a few other cities, uh, I think might help us to determine where that turning point is. Uh, I've been concerned that $15 an hour is beyond what we've experienced. Um, on the other hand, adjusted for inflation, that would put us around right. 11 $12 an hour. Every business person listening to this right now is going, Professor Greg, go back to Princeton. we got to live in the real world. <laughs> we can't wait for more data, more time, more responsible economic studies. What do you say to the person going, wait, i got to go from X to 15 or 13, 11, and the only way I'm going to do this is productivity, efficiency, robots, and depreciate labor unit count. I mean, it's just fewer people employed, right? Well, I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, I think what many individual businesses miss is that their competitors are also facing higher prices. So one of the things we've seen in the past is that minimum wage increases are often passed on in the form of higher prices. Um, and given how low inflation is at the moment, 
Uh, there might be some who actually think that it's not, not the end of the world. But I think that the uh, impact on an individual business is not as great as often is perceived because it's affecting the entire market. And let me ask you just a, a broader question about policymaking uh, in the year 2017. Tom brings up the minimum wage, but you see a lot of uh, decisions being made at the state and local level that in the past have been made at the, the federal level. What does that say to you about the role of the federal government if you have uh, cities and states tackling uh, regulatory issues, minimum wage issues? Uh, what's changed? We've seen this before with the minimum wage. In the 1980s, when the federal government didn't raise the minimum wage, the states stepped up. Uh, that's what's been t- taking place since uh, 2009, the last time the federal minimum wage increased. Donald Trump proposed raising the minimum wage to $10 an hour when he ran for office. Uh, that struck me as a reasonable compromise, a reasonable level. Uh, I don't believe he's ever brought that up again. Um, and uh, I think that's something which a consensus could be formed behind and uh, might lead uh, to a national floor, which is uh, uh, leading to uh, uh, more people to be able to earn a living that they can uh, survive on. Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, Tom, we're in a strange time now because job openings have been growing uh, very quickly, much faster than hiring. Mm. And it raises the question, why aren't we seeing more more wage growth. And historically, in that kind of environment, I think we would have seen stronger wage growth. One of the reasons why this is taking place now, I think, is because companies have uh, imposed non-compete clauses on their workers, make it harder for them to switch. Even McDonald's has a requirement that franchisees can't hire away employees from other McDonald's unless they've been out of work for more than six months. So I think this is chilling the labor market and, and putting a lid on wages. And it's one of the reasons why we're not seeing wage growth, which the minimum wage, you know, historically, when we were in this tight of a labor market, we would see an increase in the federal minimum wage. Somebody's at $9 an hour, and they go to $11.25 an hour minimum wage, whatever the geography is, whatever the state. Does everybody else go up a buck or two as well? There is often a big spillover. There's a debate in the profession now about how high that spillover goes. Yeah. Um, that's one of the issues. David and I are looking for that. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it does seem to ratchet up the whole wage distribution, uh, which makes sense. Workers care about their relative, their relative pay. Uh, that's one of the reasons why employers resist pay increases, because it's not just the individual employee. It's the whole pay structure okay, that will well, be affected. Well, this, is, this is desperately important. You just stated there's a lot of job openings. Why don't they just raise the wage? Money talks. I can't get welders. I can't get economics professors. I, you know, I can't get – you know, why Producer, you for the producers. love of God. Why right. you yen? You know, just raise the wage of why you yen, right? Uh, I think employers have gotten used to an environment which we're no longer in, but an environment where we had a surplus of labor. And I think we're heading more towards a labor shortage economy, uh, partly because of our demographics, partly because of our new immigration policy. Um, And I think uh, that employers need to adjust to this new environment, and I think the more enlightened ones will see it's in their interest to respond to these market conditions. What do we need to know about the uh, the skills gap? Our colleague Michael McKee was in Cambridge, Massachusetts yesterday. He spoke with uh, Darren Osamoglu of, of MIT about this uh, very issue. It struck me talking to Mike, Boston, Cambridge, they're in a very privileged place. They're surrounded by uh, great academic institutions and have uh, their pick of a lot of those uh, graduates. It's becoming tougher and tougher to get those graduates to stick around the greater Boston uh, area. What do we need to know about the skills gap and how to how to narrow that divide? Well, I think there is a skills gap, and I think we need to start early. 
Uh, I think it's a long-term uh, problem. I think it's been a problem for a long time for the U.S. Uh, but that can't explain the entire puzzle that we're facing because – the fastest growth in job openings has been for restaurant workers, for hotel workers, retail um, work, which has relatively low credentials, uh, generally lower education levels. So I don't think it's only a matter of skills. I think it's partly a matter of employer policy and reluctance uh, to mm-hmm. pay more for, for both high and low skills. Are we exporting our skilled jobs? I mean, you just mentioned three job categories where everybody's going, I don't want my kid to do that. You know, they can, you know, minimum wage, fine, go get a summer job, great. But are we struggling with our skilled jobs because they're going abroad? Is that the new globalization? Well, that's a risk, I think, with our new immigration policy. Because uh, if, if you look at the mix of immigrants coming to the U.S. It's What's both, the mix look like? It's both a highly skilled and the low skilled. It's a barbell. And it's a barbell and also very ambitious yeah. people at, at all levels. Um, and to the extent we're making uh, the U.S. less friendly for immigrants, uh, mm. that's going to hurt employers. It's going to hurt employees <clears throat> across the spectrum because uh, the jobs that the skilled workers would help create right. for less skilled workers won't be here. Um, uh, David mentions Michael McKee, Michael McKee meeting it up at MIT. You may not know it, Alan. MIT is a school up on a river in Boston. Uh, I was very you, impressed that you can both pronounce Asimoglu. Well, I, 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 I have what's, Mark what's the Crumpton. word that I could pronounce? Mark Crumpton Julia? helps me out. What people don't know, the right. only reason I can pronounce these names is Crumpton is in my ear telling me how to pronounce yes, it because he's the best. He okay, is. long-term growth in his research up at MIT is institutions, institutions, institutions. Where are we on an institutional flexibility that gives us a better long-term growth? Great question. Uh, it's my well, first of all, I think their own... <laughs> Daron Asimoglu has done excellent work in this area. Um, and historically, I think one of the great strengths of the U.S. has been our institutions, our institutions of free press, our institutions of uh, central banking, <clears throat> congressional budget office, uh, checks and balances that we have in government. And uh, f- frankly, I'm worried that uh, they're, they're under stress uh, now with mm-hmm. the new administration. Um, I think we uh, need to really praise our, our institutions. By the way, I was listening to your show last week, and I heard you both. You listened to us? I, I was driving into work, and <laughs> I heard you broken. both. He's trying to get I heard you both mention the CBO executive summaries, <laughs> yes. I think probably on the health care bill. Yeah. Uh, CBO is an institution we ought to cherish. Uh, even when I disagree with them, I think it's an institution that I have tremendous regard for. We're up to seven listeners in New Jersey. That's unbelievable, why you? Unreal. Alan Kruger, thank you yes, so much. You we'll much. leave it there with the fact that you listen to us on Bloomberg 1130 and Sirius XM Channel 119. We say good morning, 1061 FM Boston. Good morning to all of Sloan and Massachusetts Institute. Techno- What's the name of the school up upriver? Uh, from them? I can't, I can't remember. Leslie University. Yeah, Leslie. <laughs> Watch yourself, young girl. <clears throat> that will get us into uh, our trouble. Uh, as well. Really, really thank Jim Glassman for uh, joining us today from scenic Glendale, California. Waking up early for us. Yes, yeah. really appreciate the early morning hours. Uh, how important is this jobs report, Dr. Glassman? You know, it's always important because it's yet another 
view of the, what's really going on in the economy. But I think we got to remember these things can be very volatile month to month. And May, June, Julys have tend to be really volatile in the last couple of years. Remember last year we had a really weak May, then we got this booming June number. Last month we got a disappointment. And so, you know, you have to sort of look through the noise. And I, I think we got the idea. The, the U.S. economy is back on its feet. Unemployment's quite low. There may be still a few pockets of hidden unemployment. But frankly, uh, this report is important because it backs up what we already know, that the U.S. economy is in pretty good shape. With and it doesn't mean, we're, doesn't mean we've solved all the problems, but we're pretty much there. I, I agree that month to month there seems to be a good metric, but also a new metric. Where is normal non-farm payroll growth? You and I used to be 180 was terrible, 200 was okay, yeah. 220 was great. You've got a whole new mathematics now, don't you? Exactly, because of the, the demographics. And, you know, uh, the thing to remember is that the population has been growing about 1% a year since over the last 10 years. But our labor force has been growing about a half a percent, about 65000 a month. So this is why economists tell you we really, as long as we're getting employment growing 75 to 125, Janet Yellen will say, 75 to 100,000 a month, that's considered to be pretty normal with this slow demographics that we have. The demographics I'm referring to is the baby boom generation moving to retirement. So it's a real big deal. It's, we've had to change our mind about what kind of growth you need to get the economy back on its feet. That's what we've been learning over the last decade or so. And I think that's what we're watching here. And that's why I think it's going to be a tough story to figure out what's good and what's not good. I think the key thing is as long as employment is holding steady at a low level, no matter what the job growth is, it means that we're kind of in steady state. Jim, I know you've been looking at layoffs. What do those numbers tell you about the state of the labor economy? Pretty darn good. Uh, you know, to, to me, to me, you're getting a lot of news, pockets of news that are kind of squishy and soft, and yet that's just a piece of the economy. The, the layoffs are telling you something about the entire economy, every corner of the economy that we don't see in the numbers, a lot of it. And those trends, that, that layoff pace, jumping around week to week, but basically we're floating around 250000 per week, which is a really steady – it just tells you we're holding high ground and there's nothing really bad happening. Uh, if there are pockets of weakness, there are other pockets that are offsetting it. So it looks pretty good to me. And we've got, you know, at this time of the summer months, the auto industry goes through a lot of adjustments, and it could be really noisy. But frankly, these layoff trends are pretty steady and in a really good zone. What are we going to learn about uh, the confidence of employers from, from this report, about uh, the momentum in this U.S. economy? I'm not sure, that, because as the economy gets on its feet and we get closer and closer to full employment, it's going to be harder for people to hire folks. And so the job growth may slow down. The way you see the confidence is the, the wage trends start doing better. People have had to pay up. The, the interesting thing to me, this is music to economists' ears, mm. employers everywhere are complaining about not being able to find people, not being able to find people with the right skills. So that, to me, the fact that, that companies are actually hiring and, they're having to, and they have to pay up for it means to me the businesses are pretty confident of what lies ahead, and that's why they're doing this. That's why they're hiring aggressively. And you see more and more signs around of people needing help, you know, help wanted signs, the old-fashioned way. Uh, pretty interesting. If wages so gone I, I up the job market's not a problem. We were just talking to Alan Kruger about this. Where's the wage growth? It's not there yet, but I think, you know, uh, 
inflation is pretty low, too, so you said it had to look at things relative to inflation and productivity. But it's it's been a little disappointing, right, in the last, particularly in the last several months. But all of us economists sort of hold on to this idea that the closer we get, the tighter the labor market gets, the lower unemployment falls. It's just a matter of time before workers uh, start to see better pay increases because companies are having to work harder. So you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing really good gains in areas that are strong, the, the uh, technology sectors. Uh, we just hadn't seen a real convincing uptrend. It looked like it was moving in the right direction, moving up from 2.5%, then it kind of stalled out. But I suspect, I would be really shocked if this time next year we're not looking at faster gains in, in hours, in, in, wa- in wage rates. And, the other, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is average hourly earnings aren't the only part of the labor pay story. Companies have to pay for all kinds of benefits, health care insurance and things like that. And so if they have to pay more for that kind of stuff, they can't be as generous with average hourly earnings. And that's part of what may be going on with the health insurance premiums moving up. How about underemployment? How much attention should we pay to that figure when we get it this morning? You know, I think the trends, it's always been worth paying attention to because there's a lot of unemployment that is not reflected in the unemployment rate. So we watch that trend pretty carefully. I look at the um, involuntary part-time guys and the young adults, and the thing that's interesting is all those signs of underemployment are really getting better. And that's, that's not visible in the headline numbers when we see the payroll numbers, but it's really something that's been going on in the background, which uh, tells you, you know, whether it's people who are unemployed for very long periods of time or people who are working part-time or young adults, all of those trends are getting better. So, you know, it doesn't. It, to, to, in my book, when you take it all into account, I think you could argue, despite the fact that the unemployment rate is four and a quarter percent, I think you could argue that we're still in the top of the ninth inning. We still have a little bit more work to do uh, because there are these pockets of hidden unemployment and underemployment. But uh, I think we're doing a pretty good job getting there. Uh, is, is, it, is it okay, Dr. Glassman, if I steal your spectacular chart <laughs> of non-farm payrolls and claims inverted, which shows that yeah. we, are, we, are, we are in a totally it's, unusual time? Yeah, we really are. And, um, and I think the thing to remember about this, I mean, I love hate non-farm payrolls and job day because you're getting a real good picture of the economy. But frankly... We don't know what's really going on with small businesses. It takes the BLS a little while to figure this out. The thing I like about jobless claims is it catches everybody. No matter where you are, no matter who you work for, you're in those numbers. So it's good to compare both, and and, uh, they're both impressive trends. But what's your why? What's, What's the why that claims are as good as they've ever been? Well, there's. I think there is a... Like everything else, we're we're surprised that the economy is doing as well as it is with slow growth. But I think the the, the useful thing about claims is this, it doesn't care what our potential growth is. It's just telling you the economy is doing well, and it's picking up pockets that we don't see in the in the numbers day to day. And I think what it tells you is companies are now focused on trying to get staffing levels up. So no one wants to lay off. They may be having a harder time hiring people. That's what you would expect as we get closer and closer to full employment. But I think what it, I think what the claims number tells you is that people are pretty optimistic about the outlook and they're not willing to lay off. And even when their pockets of weakness, companies may be willing to ride through that because yeah. it's difficult to find people in a tight labor market. So you don't want to lay off unless you're really sure your business is in trouble. Yeah. 
I'm going to get this chart out, folks, on Twitter. I'll probably feature it on television on Monday. It, it's an extraordinary chart from Dr. Glassman about how non-farm payrolls are doing what they're doing. And they're hugely linked to claims up until exactly June of 2014. Hmm. And then claims have a life of their own. And it's my pleasure this morning to present the Plumist Byline Award to one Matthew Bosler, Federal Reserve reporter here at Bloomberg News, reporting from Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts. Stanley Fisher, the vice chairman, speaking there last night, talked a bit about uncertainty. And he said a cautious approach to investment by U.S. companies may in part reflect the uncertainty about the policy environment, the vice chair saying, mitigating the dampening effect of uncertainty by providing more clarity on the future direction of government policy is highly desirable. Uh, Jim Glassman, how much is uncertainty, policy uncertainty, weighing uh, on employers right now? Well, you know, I mean, uncertainty is always with us, right? I mean, I can't remember a time when we weren't uncertain about things. And frankly, you have to ask yourself, we've had a lot of uncertainty in the last 10 years, and yet here we are. The economy has recovered from a pretty devastating downturn, and the underwater problem is largely gone. And so you got to say, uh, despite all this uncertainty, I think businesses, they, they run things by looking at the possibilities, and there's a lot, of, a lot of opportunity out there, and I think that's, that really helps to dampen the worries you have about uncertainty. So uncertainty is always a, a way of life, but frankly, I don't think it gets in the way, and uh, I think the economy has done a pretty good job despite all this. Let me ask you just how you think the, the, the Federal Reserve policymakers like Mr. Fisher are going to be viewing what, what they see today. Uh, we have testimony from uh, Janet Yellen on Capitol Hill. Two days of testimony next week. We're going to get a monetary policy a report uh, as well. How's the Fed going to be processing these numbers? You know, I think, I think they're pretty uh, encouraged by what's been going on. And I think, uh, you, you know, even if the numbers are, whether it's a little high or a little low, I don't think it's going to change their mind about what they need to do. Because the, the basic idea is we've already got the economy close to full employment, and they've got policy very accommodative, and they'd like to normalize things gradually. And I think they're doing a good job with this. And the fact that inflation is quite low gives them lots of room to do it. So I don't think they're going to be dissuaded from little surprises. I don't think they're going to change their mind about what they need to do. We saw that last month, too. They 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 continue to talk about needing to normalize the balance sheet and interest rates, even though we had a weakish uh, employment number. So, you know, I think when it's, particularly when you put this report together with other things we're watching, jobless claims trends, very steady. I think uh, if you see surprises today, you tend to you, you tend to right. put it in another box. It's not, you know, you, you know things are volatile. I don't think it's going to change their mind. Are we creating full-time jobs or are we deluding ourselves into a set of part-time jobs to keep going? I think there's both. I mean, the fact that... Uh, Overall, unemployment's down means, I mean, that there's a lot of people who like to work voluntarily, part-time jobs voluntarily. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot who have been forced to work part-time. That's disappearing pretty quickly. So I think the jobs are pretty good, pretty good jobs all around. And you see, uh, you see signs of that everywhere. And, uh, you know, we haven't, you haven't seen real confirmation yet in the broad trend of wages. But I think uh, when, we, when we see that, we won't be shocked by it because we have a pretty good idea that the state of the job market is quite yeah, good. But if average hourly earnings year over year are 2.6% today, are you just assuming with rates up, inflation goes up? How, do we, how does wage growth stay ahead of rising inflation? You know, I don't, I don't think wages drive inflation. I think in the old days, 
uh, when companies had a lot of protection, you would agree to certain deals. You figure you can just raise your prices to cover. I don't think people operate that way anymore. Yeah. So if wages aren't doing well, it's because productivity is slow or because they can move operations elsewhere. So, but I think, you know, increasing when you hear, when you hear people complain and, and wring their hands about not finding workers, you just know what's coming. You know that, well, the way you solve that problem is you offer better pay. I don't think companies are going to be offering pay that puts them out of business. But uh, so, when you, if you, so if you see wage trends not doing as well as you think you should, it might be because the underlying fundamentals aren't there yet. Companies, companies can't do things that make them unprofitable. But, but I think slowly over time we're going to see better trends here. And, and well, the labor side, the job market, is really the best part of the economy so far. Jim Glassman, stay with us. We'll have you with us as we break the numbers and then move on to Mr. Gross as well. David Gura, we've got to, uh, again, pay homage to G20. Just amazing shots earlier of world leaders gathered in a bright, lit, yellow and white room. Very bright, cheerful room. A big, large Giant rectangle. Well, yeah. Prime Minister May. Over to the left, sitting to the left, facing into the rectangle from Chancellor Merkel. President Trump, two seats away from Chancellor Merkel. When do they meet? When does Putin and Trump meet? They're 945. 945 Wall Street time. They've, they've, they've had their handshake. Uh, I spoke with the uh, German ambassador to the U.S. yesterday. I asked him about that famous handshake between the mm-hmm. German chancellor and the president of the White House. He said the, the two leaders have a good and productive uh, relationship. We've made too much of the yeah. body language. We, like, we watch what we when, can. When Bill Gross visited our world headquarters here a couple weeks ago, we did the Russian toast thing. You know, <laughs> locked elbows with a, with a Stolokhnaya, you know, the Russian toast thing. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll do that today. I don't know. <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. And now joining us on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television Worldwide, we welcome William Gross of Janice uh, Anderson as well. Bill, I want to go over the job market and then get right to the turmoil, the, 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 the idea that we see higher rates and lower bill note and bond yields as well. This looks like a Yellen-friendly jobs report. It looks like a jobs report that lets a Fed, gives them some room to raise interest rates. What will be the effect when the Fed raises interest rates? Well, they've been raising interest rates, and the effect uh, depends, I suppose, Tom, on uh, how much they raise and when they raise. I I still think, uh, despite this rather strong uh, jobs report from the standpoint of uh, jobs gained, not necessarily from wages, which uh, is what uh, Yellen watches uh, seriously as well, um, that the Fed has one hike perhaps left in the year, and that's probably in December. I, I think to a significant extent it, it depends, as I've mentioned in prior uh, discussions with you, it depends significantly on what other central banks do. And if the ECB and the BOJ and others uh, you know, tend to change their policies, then the Fed must 
um, not respond, but as a leader, as the central bank global leader, you know, they've got to be cognizant of what it might do to currency levels. And so uh, they're all in the pot at the same time. And I, I think your question about the Fed is important, uh, but it's also important about uh, other central banks around the world. With what we've observed in the last number of weeks, and of course we've got rising rates, and we'll get to bonds and investment here in a moment, uh, Mr. Gross, is the idea of a Fed that is coordinated and yet at the same time constrained. How coordinated are the central banks and how constrained is Chair Yellen because she's limited by other global activities? Yeah, I don't think they're coordinated at all uh, yet. You know, obviously in the last few weeks there have been hints from uh, the ECB and hints from uh, the Bank of England that uh, they're on the move or potentially on the move at some point, 6, 12, 18 months down the road, but they're still you know, a long way back from when we stopped QE and a long way back from when we started to raise our short-term interest rates. And so um, they were beginning to be coordinated from the standpoint of philosophy, perhaps, and the direction, but certainly not in terms of timing and magnitude. And I think uh, ultimately that does have a, a significant impact or will on currency levels and uh, central banks want to keep those currency levels relatively static. Admittedly, each wants to, uh, you know, to lower their currency a little bit so that mm. it gives a push to their real economy, but uh, they've, they've got to keep things steady and so um, the, the future coordination is, I think is important. It hasn't been coordinated to this point. Bill, we're seeing a bit of a race here up to the top of the hill to declare an end to the bull market uh, in bonds. I wonder if you're vying with Ray Dalio of Bridgewater to put a flag there at the top of the hill to say that uh, we're entering a bear market. What say ye? Well, my bear market level, uh, and that was six months ago, so that isn't really applicable anymore, was up at uh, 265. You know, I uh, looked at the long-term trend since the early 1980s, and uh, interest rates on the 10-year have been falling by 20 to 25 basis points a year since then. Um, you know, it, is that a technical mumbo-jumbo? Really not, because it's an indication of what an economy needs in terms of lower interest rates in order to keep going. And so I think ultimately, although we're probably at 235 at the moment, you know, that 260, 65 level is the critical level for interest rates going forward. Do we get there in the next few weeks? Uh, pr probably not. You know, we've had a 30 basis point increase or 20 basis point increase over the last few weeks due to the, the Bund taper, yeah. uh, so to speak. So, um, but I think we're moving higher. Kareem, I want you to come over here. For Bloomberg Television, I'm going to show this chart. We'll show it out on radio. Go to Twitter with that as well. Bill, for the first time in ages, I'm showing bond price. Here's par on the Germany 10-year. Down we go. Bill, as you know, looking at your Monroe Trader, we're down about 3% on full faith and credit. Higher yields. Did you know this, Bill? Higher yields, lower bond I'm prices. It down. When does it begin to hurt, Mr. Gross? Well, that's my old teeter-totter, Tom. It's obvious. Uh, interest rates up, prices down, and that's what you've talked about. Uh, Boone's up by 30 basis points with a duration yeah. of about nine. Uh, yeah, it's about three points. When does it begin to hurt? Um, I, I think it begins to hurt at the margin here in the United States on mortgages. Uh, ultimately, it begins to hurt, and this is an unobserved fact, I guess, by the by the street that uh, that interest payments as a percentage of uh, expenses, corporate expenses, are significant, uh, perhaps 30 to 40 percent. And so it begins to hurt lower yielding corporations, junk uh, bond corporations, yeah. when they try to roll over their debt in 2017 late and 2018 early. And so as interest rates rise, 
uh, generally, and as interest rates and spreads widen, you know, the hurt right. begins to, to affect those lower quality corporations as well as individuals that want to buy a home. Bill Gross, you're unconstrained. How do you adapt within your portfolio at Janice Henderson? How do you adapt to a higher rate environment? Do you get under the desk? Do you start rooting for the New York Patriots? What's the method? <laughs> What do you do? New York Patriots. <laughs> well, of course, the way to adapt, if you were sure of higher interest rates and if you were sure that those rates would be higher than what we call the forward yield curve, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't much, um, th then what you do is you go negative duration. The problem with negative duration, and it sounds very hedgy, Tom, but the problem with negative duration, meaning short uh, bonds, basically is that you give up the, the valued carry, the carry of a positive interest rate, limited though it may be. And so investors for the past 30 or 35 years have been reluctant uh, to give up carry. It's been a carry trade as interest rates have come down and stock prices have gone up. Carry is a function of not only interest rates, but spreads and uh, risk taking. And so giving up carry and going into the negative column is a very difficult thing to do because you need higher interest rates in order to justify your position. But that's what you do. And the Janus Unconstrained Fund has been you know, short uh, carry and negative uh, perhaps by half a year relative to its bogey. And, and the bogey, by the way, is LIBOR three-month paper. Mm. So it's uh, basically an effective duration of a minus half a year at the moment. Bill, very quickly here, what did you take away from the meeting in Sintra last week, all these central bankers? There are a lot of confusion surrounding what uh, the ECB president, uh, Mario Draghi, had to say, the market interpreting what he had to say uh, differently. What was your takeaway? Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of confusion, and that's typical. There's a lot of confusion now at the Fed in terms of what they're going to do as well in terms of uh, uh, the lack of quantitative easing or uh, buying back, uh, selling uh, treasuries basically into the market. I think uh, Draghi is focused on containing volatility. I think other central bankers within the ECB uh, and members within the ECB are focused well, on the negative aspects of interest rates and what they're doing in terms of German insurance companies. So okay. um, it, it's pluses and minuses. It is our privilege to bring you William Gross of Janus uh, Henderson right now, as he always joins us on Jobs Day. We love that opportunity. Bill Gross, uh, yeah, I, I look at the whole mix here, the cocktail, if you will, of investment, and I guess it comes to when do we get a bear market in bonds? Let's begin with, can you predict a bear market mm -hmm. in bonds? Well, uh, predicting bear markets and bonds are, are used to be a function, Tom, of inflation and the potential for higher inflation followed by Fed tightening. These days, uh, with the extraordinary provisions on the part of central banks, quantitative easing and so on, you know, the ECB and the BOJ and the Fed have purchased $13 trillion worth of bonds and stocks via QE over the last uh, four or five years. And so it becomes a function of their persuasion as much as inflation and um, what we know from their uh, ideas in terms of future inflation are that, that it hasn't gone up to their targets. All uh, central banks are looking at a 2% target and um, most are dismayed that they haven't reached those yeah. targets. So a bear market in bonds is a function of what central bankers believe and at the moment uh, because they're pumping in so much money and because the inflationary targets haven't been hit you know, we probably don't have a bear market in bonds until uh, we see the whites of the central bankers' eyes. Well, that's a nice way of putting it in a military basis in the attack and battle that we're in. When does the public catch up with the new normal of low yields? 
psychologically, I haven't observed that yet. We're still trying to get back to a decent nominal and real yield return. And I respectfully say, Mr. Gross, it ain't there. No, and I've said that for a few years too. Yes, you uh, have, Tom. That I that I that I feel that uh, real interest rates and nominal rates, uh, you know, themselves have to go up in order to afford uh, the small uh, saver and large savers, by the way, insurance companies, pension funds, and so on, to earn a satisfactory return. What is that return? Well, you know, based upon historic historical examples, individuals probably think that they're in a six to seven to eight percent return world in terms of a 50-50 portfolio. I don't think so. Insurance companies and pension funds, as we know, uh, with the state of Illinois and others, you know, expect a seven to seven and a half percent return from their diversified portfolio. I don't think that's going to happen, and that's why they're having problems. And so, you know, ultimately, despite the fact that tightening and higher interest rates has a negative impact uh, historically on employment and potentially could produce a recession, I think we have to get up there in order to avoid a future recession. You know, one last point, there have been studies by, uh, you know, Princeton and others now in academia that point out that once you uh, drop below 2% in terms of a short-term rate, it really doesn't do much or hasn't done much in terms of stimulating the economy. And so I think ultimately we have to get back up to a level that stimulates savings, investment in the real economy, as opposed to simply channel funds into the financial economy. We've seen the, the German 10-year at an 18-month high. We've seen emerging market to sovereign dollar bonds posting their worst week since since November. What are the, the Bill Gross bellwether bonds? When you look around the world, what, what are the ones that you look to to tell you what's happening? Uh, in the bond market overall? Well, I, I follow the Bund uh, uh, very seriously relative to 10-year treasuries. I, I think there's a has been a, a rather dramatic correlation in the past few months, and indeed it makes sense that there should be a cor correlation, period. When the 10-year German Bund exceeded 50 basis points yesterday or the day before, you know, to me that was a signal that uh, you know, their yields are moving higher um, and that means that treasuries would be under pressure. As well, the Bank of Japan has this 10 basis point cap on their 10-year rates, and we've gone up to the 10 basis points, and I assume they're doing some uh, easing uh, policies in order to keep it there. But uh, the 10 basis points in Japan, the 50 basis points in Germany, uh, and ultimately, as I mentioned, the, the 260 level on 10 years are critical in terms of determining whether or not bonds are in a bear market or not. Just going back to the minutes that we got this week from the Fed, yes, but also from the, the ECB, there was this by any means necessary line, or at least a, a, a version of that implicit in, the, in, those, in, in the, the policy of the ECB for so long. Uh, what do you make of its removal? Do, do we see a change in tack here from the ECB? Well, I think ultimately, I know Draghi is very, very dovish and doesn't want to upset markets. He doesn't uh, adhere to my particular philosophy that I've just uh, discussed in terms of the negative aspects mm -hmm. of rates. Um, I, I think ultimately we have to wait until 2018 before they begin to taper. Um, you know, at what pace will that be? Uh, probably limited. I, you know, I continue to see the ECB buying and increasing their balance sheet from perhaps $4 trillion to, to $5 trillion over the next uh, 18 months, and that's a stimulative type of uh, 
monetary policy. So, yes, mm. taper is beginning uh, probably next year, but it's going to be slow and gradual, and that's just the way Draghi does it. Within the, the, the movement in bonds, uh, Bill Gross, is, remember this idea, Bill? Young Gura doesn't remember this. There was a point where yield actually competed with dividends. This happened long ago and far away. How close are we to where we return to the day-to-day battle of yield competing with equity dividends? Well, I, I think we have to get beyond uh, two particular uh, uh, factors uh, that, uh, that lie underneath that historical comparison, Tom. One, uh, we have to observe the amount of buybacks on the part of uh, companies. And uh, to date, although they've been coming down, they've been moving at a $500 billion a year pace. And, and many investors consider, and I think there's logic to it, that that $500 billion a year is akin to the dividend and and so you can increase the dividend rate that we see by that amount and that amounts to perhaps another one to one and a half percent secondly though i i think that uh, the corporations in, t- in terms of their dividends uh, ultimately are a reflection of the potential for growth and the expectations for growth and to the extent that growth is now moving down and investors are beginning to look at two as opposed to three and uh, less fiscal stimulation on the part of Trump and tax policies and so on, that ultimately, uh, you know, stock yields uh, as a reflection of growth, um, you know, have to have to start to increase in, in terms of immediate return as opposed to a future return. How, sh- how worried should we be? How worried are you about uh, the contagion associated with this route, that this could get into, that we could see this move into other... Oh, oh. This is not a route. That's being inflammatory. Gross, Gross is seeing 45... Tom is getting the hook. Bill Gross remembers a day where Alexander Hamilton wanted to coalesce all the state bonds into a federal bond. Bill Gross, seriously, this is important, folks, for the hysteria we're all going to read about over the weekend. Bill Gross, this is not a bond route, is it? No, not yet. You, uh, okay. you know, 30 basis points in Germany is, is not a bound route. And, uh, you know, we've come down from very low levels in terms of a term premium and in terms of uh, compressed volatility. And the, the volatility that we've seen in the last few days, um, even as expressed in the VIX, is certainly not a route. Um, you'd have to see volatility in double and triple um, and, and, and prices declined by two or three points a week in, in terms of a bond route. Uh, so no, not yet, but uh, ultimately inflationary expectations and central bank policies will try to contain uh, volatility, will try to dampen interest rates. Um, whether the market agrees with them forever, I, I think will be the ultimate question. Uh, Yields, to my way of thinking, should move higher. David, get one more question here. I do want to point out Gross's portfolio in the last 30 days is in the 91st percentile. So he's being very rowdy. There you go. David, he's being very rowdy. As I move to the surveillance timeout chair for for Martin's speak there. There you go. Phil, let me just ask you lastly what you're going to be. Go ahead. I was going to say that that's a function of being negative on German interest rates, and to the extent that they've gone up by 30 and prices down, then then Janice has done well. There you go, Bill. Let me ask you. Lastly, here as we push ahead to next week, we get a monetary policy report. We hear from the Fed chair. What are you going to be listening for when she speaks on Capitol Hill two days next week? I believe on Wednesday and Thursday. 
Well, the dovishness, hawkishness, uh, you know, focus on inflation and financial conditions, I guess. That's the debate that I see. I mean, Yellen suggests the financial conditions aren't important. Uh, others, uh, such as the, you know, the president of the New York Fed, uh, you know, suggest that uh, stock prices and financial conditions are important. So I'd, I'd like to see answers between the, those two heavyweights. Uh, uh, in, in, in terms of whether stock prices are key or not key. Bill Gross, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mr. Gross is with Janice Henderson. It's been a remarkable day, and we've now got a nice move in the bond market off the jobs report, a better jobs report, yields higher. I guess uh, 2.94% on the 30-year bond. A lot of the different American media maybe has moved away from Hamburg and the G20 uh, meetings. But to be honest, uh, David Gura, across the Bloomberg, the headlines continue. And they're really pretty important. The president meeting with the leadership of Mexico. Uh, Trump says Mexico should, quote, absolutely, unquote, pay for border uh, wall. There's headlines on China. China blasts G20 over trade. Hands were shaken. Uh, and Hamburg's calling in a little more security. So as we go to our next guest, David Gura, it, it's sort of a stew here in Germany on this Friday. That's a borscht, I think. A borscht, yes. Well done. <laughs> uh, a pleasure here to bring in Ambassador Max Baucus, former U.S. ambassador to China, former U.S. senator, of course, from the great state uh, of Montana. He joins us on our phone lines. Let me get your perspective, Ambassador, if I could, from your time in Beijing. I imagine this issue, the North Korea issue, loomed uh, large while you were there. What changed for you earlier this week, July 4th, uh, when North Korea tested this new uh, missile? How did the, uh, the political calculus change? Well, first, um, uh, not much changed. Uh, because even though we Americans, including President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry and others, uh, spoke very frequently, as did I with the Chinese leadership about North Korea, um, the North Koreans would, um, excuse me, the Chinese would come back with platitudes. They wouldn't say anything. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un proceeds and, and develops his missiles. So in a certain sense, nothing's changed. What's um, more imminent now, though, is that how far he's uh, developed his missile capability, and um, and how also it's becoming more clear that China is not only not willing to help very much, but maybe even to, uh, siding with Russia and, and in opposition to some degree to United States uh, ways to try to solve this issue. So it's 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 becoming more ominous in my judgment. Help us with uh, with urgency and diplomacy. We we heard from the president this week via Twitter. Uh, we had to try with China. It sounded like he was given up on, on applying pressure to China on the issue of, uh, of North Korea. Uh, you've lived this. How, how, how difficult is it to get things to move faster diplomatically? Well, I, I think it's a mistake for him to conduct foreign policy via his Twitter. Um, it's, um, it's, it, on one hand, his statements are inconsistent. Sometimes they're bombastic and sometimes they're more reasonable. And foreign leaders, therefore, including Kim Jong-un and, and President Xi, really don't know what to expect. It's, it's inconsistency. Rather, and second, it's all public. 
Rather, I, I think that it's up to the United States um, to buckle down, dig down really deep, work with other countries and figure out a much more solid uh, uh, plan that puts a lot more pressure on all countries. In this case, it's not just North Korea, but it's on China and on other allies of ours who in turn then put pressure on China and on Russia to get a solution here. All countries now are involved. If uh, Kim can shoot an ICBM, that threatens the world. And it's just up to the United States to be presidential, be statesmanlike, and not to not conduct all these tweets. Let me ask a senator from Montana a question. Did you ever go home? You know, I mean, I know, I know Max Baucus only took five or six days a year off. But when you did go home to Montana, did, were you ever greeted with the emotion and anger that you see your colleagues greeted with now? Is this a new thing or did this used to happen to you? Well, no, I I got it um, when I took my trips home too. Very frequently, I can remember two or three healthcare meetings. Uh, and I also found that it worked if I just stood there. I totally respected the people who were asking the questions and respected the people who were pretty angry, kind of ticked off, and listened. You got to really listen. And after about an hour, an hour and a half at meetings of about maybe a hundred people, two hundred people. The tension calmed down a lot, and I think there's a lot more mutual self-respect. Now, they may not really like the health care bill that we passed that much, but at least there was a strong communication, and we talked a lot to, uh, with, uh, with, American, with, with my constituents. second issue really came up a lot is the Second Amendment, you know, gun control. Man, oh, man, that's, that's hot and it, it, in Montana. And uh, so, again, I just listen to people and be very respectful. I started meeting by saying, hey, okay, I know you're upset. Yep. All I ask is you give me five minutes with, and let me speak uninterrupted. Then we'll let, let the roof yeah. get blown up. We'll let it rip, and yeah. it works. Senator Baucus, we treasure when you're on with us. I'm going to ask you a deeply emotional question for our national audience, and particularly our audience in New York. Can we have gun legislation that meets the constituencies of your Montana and at the same time meets the constituencies of our urban areas, and particularly after this horrific, I use this word, folks, with immense respect for NYPD, for the assassination of a police officer in the last 48 or 72 hours. Can we have two gun policies, Max Bacchus? I frankly don't see it. I mean, um, if we had one gun policy in Montana where people are, Hunters, outdoorsmen, respect guns. Our crime rate's very low. And another gun policy in New York where handguns are virtually banned. That might work in New York as well as um, uh, the, outline, uh, the approach I outlined for Montana. The trouble is guns go across state lines. And I, the answer yeah. to the question is I just don't see how we can combine these two. No. We have to leave it there. Too many issues. Always a joy to speak to you. Ambassador Bacchus, thank you. Uh, so, David, there's never enough time with Max no, Bacchus. Absolutely. Uh, always great to get it's his perspective great. on health care, on finance, uh, and yeah. indeed on China relations as well. China relations as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.